Welcome to Grace Church. If you're online with us, we're glad that you're here as well. And, uh, and for those of you that are here, it's glad to see some of your faces. And uh, if you know what I mean by that, it's good to see you. And uh, today we're starting a brand new series. I am so excited about it. We're going to be looking at the Psalms. And, uh, and so uh, we're, gonna, we're not going to be in one particular Psalm today. We're actually going to look at where is Jesus found in the Psalms. That's the subject matter today. And I think you're going to be blown away. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, today I want you to sit back. I want you to relax, and I want you to take a haircut from God, okay? Because it is amazing, the preciseness of Scripture. And I want you to walk out of here saying, what an amazing God we have. What a powerful God we has, have that writes history in advance. We're going to look at prophecy today and what the Bible says about Jesus in the Psalms written a thousand years before he'd come. And so that's where we're going today. And the premise of the series is this. You all know that uh, the Psalms are a collection of songs. They were Israel's songbook. And so the premise of our study today is that you can learn a lot from a song, right? If you just look at what's in them. So today, uh, I pray that you'll just buckle your seatbelt and come on this journey. And uh, we're going to just jump right into today because I'm so excited about what we have. So let's go, let's go right to Jesus. So after Jesus died for our sins, he rose again. He appeared to many people, over 500 people. But two in particular that Jesus appeared to, they were walking and they were discouraged and they were downcast because the Savior had been crucified and they didn't know what to think and they had heard his promises, but they didn't know. So Jesus appears to, to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus and in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, this is what Jesus says to these two disciples. When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus said, hey, you all have been studying, this is my interpretation of what he said, you all have been studying the Old Testament for years and years and years. Haven't you seen me? Don't you know my promises? Because everything that I did, everything about me is written there. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to take a collection of books called the Psalms, one of my favorite collection of writings in the, in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at Jesus up close and personal and see what, did, what does the psalm say. So we're going to look at prophecy. This is all prophecy. This is all about God writing the history in advance before it comes to pass. And so it's a beautiful thing. And I hope that you walk out of here with an incredible confidence in the Bible as the inspired word of God when you hear what the Psalms say about Jesus. So here we go. Uh, first of all, we're going to look at his identity. What does the Bible say? What does Psalms say about the identity of Jesus? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to overhear, we're going we're to listen in to a conversation between the Father and the Son. Jesus, or the Bible reveals to us, the Bible reveals to us that God exists as a triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three personalities. So there's a conversation that happens between the Father and the Son that reveals to us who the Son is. So here we go. Psalm 45. If you're taking notes, you might want to drop that down. Go back and look at this. Psalm 45, verse 6 says, 
This is what, now the Father's speaking to the Son. Keep that in mind. Your throne, O God. The Father says to the Son, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. You love justice and hate evil. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, pouring out oil of joy on you more than anyone else. So then the question is, how do I know that this is a conversation between the Father and the Son? And the answer to that is I've read my Bible. But let me show it to you. So in Psalm chapter 1, the psalmist, or, or, or the author of, of, of Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Hebrews, I said that wrong. In Hebrews chapter 1, uh, the, the author of Hebrews, which we don't know who, is, who it is, the author of Hebrews writes and quotes Psalm 45. He's quoting Psalm 45, but he puts a different flavor on it. So listen to this. This is out of Hebrews chapter 1. It says this, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. The flavor here then we see is that this is God speaking. He is God, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. And I'm just going to say, who did the Father think Jesus was? He thought he was God. That's what he calls him here. He declares him to be God right in the midst before Jesus comes. So his incarnation, that is his, his earthly appearance, is, uh, is a matter of him emptying himself of the right to be regarded as God. Now he takes upon the form of a human servant. And now we see that God sees him as God. So if that's all true, and I believe it is, then it requires a response from me. I can't be neutral. If Jesus is who he said he was, if Jesus came as the ex exact representation of God, if Jesus came to reveal the Father to us, then what that requires of me is I can't just sit there. I have to respond to God. I have to, I have to understand that and respond. I have to move in a different way than perhaps I would move in the past. So there's a guy by the name of Bono, and he... Uh, contemporary uh, artist, and uh, he's a, a Christ follower, and he says some things about Jesus that I think are relevant here. So let's just watch this video. I think it's, the, it's a defining question for a Christian is who was Christ. And, and I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher or, a, a, you know, because actually... He went round saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So, if that's the case, if Jesus said that he was the Son of God, then the reality is, is that has great implications for my life. So I have a question for you. Who do you say that Jesus is on Monday? I know who you say he is on Sunday. I watch you raise your hands. I watch you worship Jesus. I watch you do all the things that Christians and churchy people do. All right, come on, smile at me. It's true, I see all that. I see you, you know, you come in, you smile, you say good morning, all, that, it, all those things. You're nice to people, at least in here. I don't see what you're like in the parking lot, but you're nice to most people here. But, but here's the reality. So what is your life like on Monday? 
I see what it's like on Sunday, but if Christ is who he said he was, then my life should be no different on Sunday than it is on Monday or Monday than Sunday. Seven days a week, I should have a life of expression to Jesus that is no different, that I should worship him as the living God. I shouldn't care. Listen to me. Look at me when I say this. I shouldn't care what people think of me if Jesus is who he said he is. And so I just want to say, I see and I declare that Jesus is, in fact, God himself who came into this world so that you and I could have eternal life and know who God was. So that's his identity. That's what the Psalms declare. So is there anything else that the Psalms say about who Jesus is and what he did? Well, let's talk about his work. Again, we're going to eavesdrop into the, in a conversation between the Father and the Son. Psalm 110. And this is what it says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies. The Father says to the Son, have a seat. Sit right here at my right hand until I do something about your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. That's what the Father said. And then, now watch this. This is really the part that I want you to see. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over all of your enemies. You will rule your enemies. So the work that Jesus came to do was to bring the kingdom. That's what the psalm said. What is his work? A thousand years before Christ came, the father says to the son, sit here until I make your, enemy, my, your enemies, you know, uh, in their, put them in their place. And now, and now I'm going to say that what I want you to do, Jesus, this is the father speaking, I want you to bring your kingdom. So when we read the Bible, we go into the New Testament, and this is what we read in the New Testament. Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Why was Jesus sent? To bring the kingdom. He offered it to Israel. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. That's what the, that's what the New Testament says. The Psalms declare that his work was the work of the kingdom. So the phrase kingdom of heaven kingdom of God does not refer to a place called heaven where people who believe in Jesus go after they die. That's not the kingdom of God. That is not the kingdom of heaven. So what is it? What is the kingdom, what is the kingdom of God? And what does Jesus mean when he offers the kingdom? It refers to the rule of heaven, that is of God, being brought to bear in this present world. That's what it means. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he said this. Listen to this carefully. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, are those just words? You know, is those just words we repeat? You know, when we, when we, that comes out of the Lord's Prayer. You know, when, so when we're praying through the Lord's Prayer, our Father, the one who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we get to these words, your kingdom come, your will be done. Is that just a formality? Or are those penetrating, powerful words that we should be praying every day? Your kingdom come. And when we pray them, what does that mean? What does it mean, your kingdom come, your will be done? Well, what you're actually praying is that the kingdom of God, the power of God, the rule of God, first of all, happens in my life. 
When I'm praying that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. You're praying for that kingdom to penetrate your life, for the rule of Christ to to be evident in your life. And then we're praying secondarily, in addition to that, that because of that, then the the area that I'm in will experience some of that kingdom because of me. And then eventually what we're praying is that Jesus will stand off of his throne and he'll come and he'll take authority over this planet. That's exactly what we're praying. Your kingdom come is so powerful. Let's say it together. Your kingdom come. Say it one more time. Your kingdom come. Is that something that you long for, you want, you desire in your life? Or would you rather just retire and buy your motorhome? Come on now. Hello? I mean, would you, rather, would you rather just have your life or do you want Christ's life in you? Would you rather just have your kingdom or do you want Christ's kingdom? And that is something that you, I can't decide for you. You have to decide. But the reality is, is that the work of Christ, the work of Christ, if you want to be involved in the work of Christ, it means that you're involved in allowing his authority on this planet through you. That's what it means. That you're allowing his authority on this planet to come through you. So what else does the psalm say? When you think it couldn't get any better, it does. So here we go. Let's let's look at his rejection. Does the Bible say anything? Does the psalm say anything about how Jesus would be rejected? Well, actually, Psalm 118. So let's look at that. Psalm 118 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Came to his own and his own received him not. But God established Jesus. Although man rejected him, God established Jesus as the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. By the way, that's so powerful. That's a powerful statement. It wasn't by accident that what happened to Jesus. This was the Lord's doing. And it's wonderful to see. This is the day. Now watch this next phrase. This is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. You know, I've heard that. There's songs about that. And everybody, you know, people say that this is the day that the Lord has made. I'm telling you, listen to me carefully. That isn't just any day. That's the day that Jesus was crucified. That's that day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in that day. That is so powerful. That's what the psalm said. And uh, Peter quotes this verse as he explains this new thing that the God is doing called the church. And, and I just want to focus just a shade on the idea of Christ's rejection for just a minute. So let's start with this concept. You all understand. How many know that rejection hurts, right? How many of you all have had a personal rejection in your life that caused you to have a stomach ache? Anybody here? Ache in your gut. It's like you got kicked in your stomach and you can't breathe for a while. And and so rejection hurts. According to studies, that kick in the gut feeling that you get when you're ignored or chosen or not chosen for a team or or that somehow someone divorced you or or some, you know, something happened in your life that someone just said something and just rejected you. That feeling that you get is just as devastating as physical symptoms. Watch this. Listen to this. Brain imaging studies show that rejection affects the brain precisely in the same way that pain does. Physical pain. Same thing. 
affects the brain in the same way. So let's think about that. That's the feeling, that kick in the gut feeling that Jesus had when here, here he is. He is the Son of God. He's God in human flesh. He comes unto his own. He does all the miracles that the Bible says Messiah would do. He heals the sick. All that came to him were, were pushed away. He healed the sick. He spent hours every day, many often, healing the sick. He raised the dead. Good night. He raised the dead. He fed thousands of people out of nothing. I mean, you're talking about a God who demonstrates that he's actually the Messiah. He comes to his own people and the crowning miracle that Jesus did was in John chapter number 11 that, that, that sealed his fate once and for all. Remember the story in John chapter 11 of Lazarus and how Jesus goes into that tomb and calls Lazarus out of the dead. He rises and that moment, from that moment forward, the religious people of that day set their mind on killing the man. You know why? Because they couldn't disprove that he was the Messiah and that he was upsetting their little spiritual kingdom. So that's, that's the context of this rejection that we're talking about. He comes into his own. He does everything he needs to do to prove himself that he is the son of God. And yet, he is rejected. So let me just, in a kind of in a humorous but kind of microcosm way, let me talk about that just for a second by telling you a cute little story. Y'all know who Elvis Presley is, right? I mean, some of the younger generation might not. He was this rock star in my age. And uh, Elvis Presley, just go to Vegas and you'll figure out who he is. So Elvis Presley, before he was famous, used to frequent this steakhouse in Tennessee. And he was good friends with the owner. And uh, this was before he was famous. And one night, uh, after he became famous, they were going to have a Elvis Presley impersonator, impersonator night contest. And so whoever could do the best impression would win the prize. They had a cash value for it. So Elvis decides to show up to the event. So he sits in the back. He sits in the back and he, you know, he, you know, lets everybody perform and he gets up and he sang Love Me Tender to a polite audience that, you know, that was nice. To a polite, polite audience and uh, he came in third that night. <laughs> Could you imagine that? Elvis Presley sang his own song. He comes in third place. That had to hurt, Right. Good night. There's somebody better than me. It's my song. I made it famous. There's somebody better than me. Now think about Jesus. Think about the fact of all that he is and all that he did. And uh, think about the one who created us, who demonstrates his love for us and while we were yet sinners died for us. And yet oftentimes... We are neutral with him. Oftentimes we deny him. Come on. Maybe not audibly, but sometimes, you know, just avoiding situations where you might be put on the spot and be identified as one of them. <laughs> one of those Christ followers. You know what I mean? 
And so, I mean, you just think about that and think about how, how painful that is to, this, to, to the Messiah. And the question then is, why did he do that? Why did he go through all of that rejection? Why did he, go, why did he, why did he even bother? And the answer is, because he loves you personally. He loves you personally more than you can ever. Your brain has the capability of understanding. That's why. He loves you more personally, knows more, knows more about you than you even know yourself, and loves you anyway. That's why he suffered all that. Does the Bible, does the psalm say anything else about this Jesus? Well, it talks about his suffering and death. So this is Psalm 22. I'm not going to put it on the screen. I just want you to listen I want you to listen to these words. This is, this is, I'm not going to read every verse in Psalm 22. I'm going to give you a flavor of it. And then I want you to be listening for what does this sound like? Do I know anything about Jesus in Psalm 22 that this might be describing? So the first words in Psalm 22 is this. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Have you ever heard those words before? Why are you so far from, uh, away from me when I groan for help? But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads saying, Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Notice the preciseness of this prophetic utterance the psalmist does. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garment among themselves and throw dice. They gamble for my clothing. Exactly what happened as Jesus comes into this world. No greater pain has anybody, anyone ever experienced on any occasion or any level than the hell that Christ suffered at this moment in time. Just none. But Why? He carried all the pain, sin, guilt, shame in that moment. I couldn't imagine that. Taking on the whole sins of the world. He became sin for us who knew no sin. He, he didn't know sin. He took on sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Can you wrap your mind around that? He literally physically became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that would have been enough, in my mind at least, and yet there's a far deeper level of his suffering that we rarely talk about. The fact is, is that he was forsaken and punished us. The Father, when he laid the sins of the world on Jesus, turned his back and didn't look at the sin. And I'm just going to simply say, can you imagine what that felt like for the first time ever, forever? This is the eternal Son of God who has been the Father and the Son have never had a separation. Ever. For all eternity, the Father and the Son have never been separated. And so Jesus, for the first time, experiences the reality of what it feels like to be alone. And he cries out from the cross, my God, my God. Cries out, why have you abandoned me? Imagine this. Imagine this. After the service, I want you to, I'll just give you a word picture. Imagine after a service, one of you come up to me and say, I never want to speak to you again. That's actually happened a lot of times here at Grace. 
and it hurts. Right? I mean, you know, I'm human. It hurts. But now, imagine, imagine if after one of the services, my wife came up and said, I never want to speak to you again. Let's see you again. That would deeply hurt. Why? Because the greater level of intimacy, the greater pain happens in rejection and suffering. And many of you have had a glimpse of that, but not like this, not like the son did. For the very first time in eternity, the father and son are now separated. And the question then is, why? Because Jesus was experiencing judgment day for you that you would never have to be judged by God. That's why. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. And I can promise you this. Listen to me carefully. A question that I get all the time is that people say to me, you know, Pastor Dan, I feel like God has abandoned me. And I'm going to say to you, absolutely untrue. Because Jesus experienced that abandonment so that you would never have to. That's the reality. That's the truth. That is so comforting in my own soul. This judgment that happened to Jesus, let's just get real, should have happened to you. You deserved it. He didn't. You deserved. In fact, I'm going to tell you this. Listen to me carefully. Your sin is far worse than you think it is. And all I have to do is look at the cross to know that. We try to make it seem not so bad. But the reality is, is that, and some of the greatest sins, now listen to this carefully, some of the greatest sins in the history of the world have been committed by religious people. I'm just saying, this sacrifice that Jesus made was mind-blowing, boggling. I can't wrap my mind around why he would do it for a sinner like me. I just can't get my mind around that, but I know it's true. And I think the more you let that soak in, the more you let that saturate your soul, the better off you are. The more humble you are, the more righteous you become in relationship to who you are as a child of God. This is big stuff. This is, this is all written in the Psalms. Before it ever happened, it was, told, it was told that it would happen. And then what else do we learn? What else do we learn about the Psalms? What do we learn about Jesus in the Psalms? We learn about the fact that his resurrection was foretold. So in Psalm 16, verse 10 it says, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. The person who wrote this was David. But he wasn't writing it about himself. He was writing it in a prophetic way. This is about Jesus. And this is the verse that Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he gets up and preaches this sermon. And he says to all Israel, he said, hey, guess what? Look over there. You see that tomb? That's David's tomb. He's still in the grave. But Jesus, not so. He's raised from the dead, just like Psalm said he would. Just like this song said he would. Isn't that amazing? Written in advance. It wasn't a surprise. And if the disciples had been studying and looking at the Old Testament, they would have known it. Israel had seen what was in the Psalms. They would have known that they couldn't kill Jesus and leave him in the grave. No way. No way. And then, what else does the Bible say in Psalm about 
the person of Jesus. Well, in Psalm chapter 2, his second coming is talked about. Not only just his first coming, but his second coming. Listen to these words. This is Psalm 2. The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together. Here's what, listen to me carefully, here's what all the enemies around Israel have in common. They all hate Israel. All the nations around Israel hate them. You know all those missiles that have been shot at Israel recently? That is just a small portion of what's going to happen at the end of the age, right before Jesus comes back. This is a small portion because the entire world rises up against Israel and against the Christ. And this is what Psalm 2 says, the kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord, against his anointed one, that is the Christ, and say, let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from the slavery of God. Who would consider God as a slave driver? The world does at the end of the age. But the one who rules in heaven, here's his response. He laughs. Are you, are you kidding me? You're going to do battle with me? You think you can win? You think your earthly, your earthly missiles are going to have one dent in my armor? Are you kidding me? He laughs. He scorns them. He just, he laughs. Then in anger, he rebukes them. And watch this next phrase. And, in terrify, and, and terrifying them with his fierce fury. When Jesus comes back the second time, he's not riding on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. He's not surrendering to be crucified. He's coming back to establish his kingdom on the planet. That's the gospel. And I've just explained the gospel to you in the book of Psalms. It's just a beautiful story. It is a powerful story. Jesus has seen in the Psalms we see his person. We see that he's God. We see his rejection. We see his suffering, his resurrection, and his second coming. And so what I want you to do right now is that we're going to do a song, and it's called Hosanna in the Highest. And we don't want you to stand. We want you to stay seated. This is an experience for you. It's not, it's not designed for you to stand up and worship God in. It's designed for you to sit in awe of this God who has done such an amazing work on your behalf. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's awesome. And so just sit there and reflect upon Jesus. The word Hosanna literally means save us. Save us now. And I hope and pray for your sake that that's your prayer as you think about the work that Jesus has done for you. That makes sense?